Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today, for once, we finally get a bit of a reprieve. We do not have to recount the entire cultural history of Athens and also cover half of the symposium. We do not have to cover the entirety of the Old Testament or anything nearly that ridiculous. Today, we are just talking about one little bitty chapter from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and it's not even that dense as far as philosophical weight is concerned. So we actually get some time to breathe today. Um, isn't that exciting? Um, but I do also want to sort of observe the transition here. This is our, going to be our first lesson primarily focused on the friendship side of love and friendship, and we're actually going to be dwelling here for a little while. Um, obviously, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, uh, the two chapters that we've uh, elected to, to read and to speak about are primarily concerned with friendship and not so much erotic love. Um, additionally, the next major text we're going to be tackling next week is um, Cicero's De Amicita, or Amicita, I'm not entirely sure, which is also basically translated on friendship um, and also deals primarily with friendship. Um, but I also want to sort of talk about this move. Like, what is in fact the difference here? What in fact is actually changing about what we're talking about? Um, is this really all that big a change at all, first and foremost? Um, most notably for our purposes in the symposium, we were primarily talking about the Greek word eros, um, erotic love, which as we talked about in the first lecture on what is love, you know, the Greeks have these three words for friendship, eros, or three words for love, eros, philia, and agape. Um, and again, agape we're just sort of sidelining for the time being because we will get there. It will become much more important when the Christians translate it as charity and we start getting this whole like new depth to that word. Um, so we've gone from talking about eros, as Plato has it, this sort of passionate, erotic love, um, especially with respect to, like, uh, male pederast lovers, lover between husband and wife, or between sort of, like, a man and a woman. Um, we, we saw a lot of different sort of directions with that in the symposium, but it's also worth noticing that Plato is kind of drawing eros away from its original physical ground and instead focusing more, especially in the speech that Socrates gives us um, and that Diatima is involved in, like we're focusing more on the transcendent qualities of eros. We are taking eros out of the physical. Um, we're actually, to some degree, making eros more similar to philia. Um, where philia is supposedly more engaged with, like, friendship, as we typically understand it. Relations between equals, or affectionate relations between superiors and inferiors, as Aristotle seems especially preoccupied with here. Um, but also notice that Aristotle, too, is kind of blowing friendship out, making it more than we originally thought. Like, Aristotle specifically talks about husbands and wives and lovers. Um, he is keen to discuss the friendship that underlies erotic relationships as well, and even his whole category that he talks about, these friendships of pleasure, certainly seem to have a sexual component to it. Um, it's kind of looming large here. So once again, as much as our initial sort of discussion of love made it out that like having multiple categories of love seems to be convenient 
for our purposes because it allows us to talk about you know erotic love specifically or friendly love specifically or something else in the way of love specifically notice that these categories as as sort of convenient as they are are it doesn't take us long for us to start exploding and collapsing them um, as much as we have sort of been talking about love and friendship as two different entities the fact of the matter is they are intimately linked um, friendships are based on love and most love relationships have a friendly quality to them like these are not isolated categories they are not completely separate you cannot you know completely separate the two and talk about them as independent entities already we have plato and aristotle collapsing these categories talking about the ways that they influence each other making it seem that you cannot have one of these relationships without the other um now the second thing i want to sort of point out here um is the the method that we're seeing here because this is strangely typical of discussions about friendships as we're going to see them going forward there's a certain informality to them um, like plato's symposium also has its own informality don't get me wrong but there's also a, a very clear sort of pattern that plato establishes through the symposium like it's very obvious that each of the speakers at the symposium you know phaedrus and aristophanes and uh, eryximachus um, socrates and alcibiades as well they're all kind of riffing on this common theme like here is love but from a different perspective here is love from the perspective of someone concerned with the health of the state here is love uh, from the perspective of someone writing a myth here is love from the poet's perspective here is love from the philosopher's perspective here is love from the obsessive's perspective um, and all of these perspectives contribute to the overall perspective of love our overall understanding of what love is and can embody but importantly for Plato, there are many different kinds, some of which can sort of bleed into each other, but which aren't necessarily irreconcilable. Um, love is a multifaceted, multivalent, complex entity with a lot of potential interpretations, many of which sort of stand in contrast with one another. Friendship, on the other hand, when we see philosophers talk about it, there's going to be less diversity and more collapsing into one another. Um, the discussion will frequently be sort of spotty and informal. Um, and I don't know if that's just a characteristic of the people who seem to be most interested in friends, if this is like an accident of history, or if this is sort of some kind of philosophical you know, quality that friendship itself has, that it is sort of lending itself to this ambiguous, kind of informal, wide-ranging discussion that is less interested in, like, specific categorization and careful delineation of relationships or, you know, the ways that love can manifest as, as different and varied. Um, and instead, sort of, it's fuzzy. Um, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, we're going to see this with Aristotle to some degree, and Aristotle is a very regimented thinker as a rule. Um, like, even more so than Plato. As much as Plato is very sort of clear-cut in his logical reasoning, he's also always playing multiple games behind the scenes. Um, there is, you have to read Plato on multiple levels. As, you know, a straightforward philosopher talking through, um, 
whatever subject he's talking about with his interlocutors, but also engaging in framing devices and metaphors and, you know, irony and all sorts of complex literary strategies. Aristotle, by contrast, he speaks straight from, you know, the hip. Like, he is... He starts us off by saying, we're going to talk about friendship, we're going to ask these questions, bing, 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 we're going to have these categories, bing, 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 let's talk about them. And this is typical of his work. Like, if you read most of his texts, it'll have this sort of quality. It'll even seem formulaic after a while. Um, Aristotle is a scientist's philosopher. Plato is an artist's philosopher. Which is not to say that they disagree or have wildly different perspectives. Like, it's pretty hard to read the Nicomachean Ethics after having read the symposium and not see tons of connections, tons of things that Aristotle is sort of drawing from the symposium or from the Lysis or from the Gorgias or any number of Plato's other dialogues. Um, Aristotle was Plato's student, but Aristotle has a very different approach. Um, they will often come to the same conclusions, um, but Aristotle will come at them directly where Plato will frequently come at them indirectly. Um, and what I find most strange in this case is that Aristotle, Aristotle's direct approach frequently seems to founder against the subject of friendship. Uh, like, the Nicomachean Ethics is a gorgeous book. It's one of my favorite works of Aristotle. It's probably the most popular work of Aristotle and the most widely read of Aristotle. It's certainly the one that I teach the most. Um, like, I teach chunks of the Nicomachean Ethics in my ethics class, kind of obviously. It's sort of the foundational text on the subject. Um, obviously, we're talking about it in here on the subject of love and friendship. Um, his virtue ethics is frequently discussed in, in sort of ethics classes of all sorts of, of, of ways. Like, this is an important book, and it's also a clear book. Um, like, Aristotle's other works are often pretty kind of abstracted. That's not even the right word. They're difficult to read. They are not necessarily clear in some cases. And it's been hypothesized that um, Aristotle didn't actually write his own books, like the physics, the metaphysics, um, on the soul, the, even the Nicomachean Ethics to some degree. It's in all likelihood um, that these are actually his students' notes on Aristotle rather than Aristotle's writings himself. Um, and sometimes, you know, especially with something like On the Soul, which has a famously difficult passage uh, towards the end of the book, like, you very much get the sense that, you know, the, the person who was usually taking the notes was absent that day in class and got his notes from somebody who wasn't paying nearly as much attention. Um, like, the quality of Aristotle's writings vary wildly. Um, and, you know, you can get passages that are very clear, very sober-minded, very straightforward, very direct. And then you can get passages which are incredibly obscure and utterly impossible to figure out. Like, as though he's writing in code or something. Um, which, again, could be because it's one of his students writing shorthand. Uh, but the Nicomachean Ethics does not have any chapters, any passages that are totally obscure in the way that that chunk of On the Soul is. Um, this is very straightforward. The trick with the friendship passage, which the friendship passage is one of the most 
like frequently teached and most famous passages in the book. Like, again, everybody reads chapters 1 and 2, and we need to talk about chapters 1 and 2 because it definitely informs what he's doing here in chapters 8 and 9. But if you, you know, if you are teaching 1 and 2 and more of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, usually you're going to jump to 8 and 9. Um, the other chapters from 3 to 7, as well as chapter 10, tend to be less valued, less less frequently assigned in college classes unless you are specifically talking about Aristotle or specifically talking about the Nicomachean Ethics. You know, if you are just taking bits and pieces of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, number one passage is chapter one and two, number two passage is chapters eight and nine. Um, but all that to say, like, despite its fame, Aristotle is kind of scattered here. Um, like, he does set out some pretty clear goals, he does set out some pretty clear categories in classic Aristotle fashion, but he's also going to just kind of get distracted and sort of let other things get bled into the subject. He's going to get very sidetracked with what other people say about friendship, the sort of common knowledge that exists about friendship. Um, it's kind of interesting as you know a philosopher as as someone who has read a lot of aristotle who has read a lot of these other thinkers to see that all of the texts on friendship that we read in this class all the texts sort of specifically devoted to the subject of friendship have this kind of informality to them have this kind of lackadaisical not nearly as rigorous but sort of still insightful approach and this is constant like, as much as all of our perspectives on love are going to radically change over the course of 2,000 years, you can read this chunk of Aristotle back-to-back -back with C.S. Lewis in the 1950s writing on friendship and see a ton of similarities. They come to a ton of the same conclusions. The difference is the culture that is producing it, which... I don't know, like, that's something we really can't talk about here at the beginning of our discussion of friendship, but I do want you to keep an eye out for it as we go forward through the ages. Notice how friendship kind of does not change at the same time as love changes very radically. Um, it's very striking. It's very strange. Um, there are, of course, exceptions to this. Like, there are quite a few thinkers in the modern era who are convinced for one reason or another that friendship is dead or that friendship as the ancients had it is something that we just don't have anymore. Um, C.S. Lewis may very well be an outlier for that reason because he is a medievalist. He does study old texts and probably knew Aristotle's passage on uh, friendship very well in addition to like Cicero and Aquinas and um, Aylred, the stuff that we're not going to read in here, like he probably would have been more familiar with these classical passages because as a medievalist he would have been studying them adjacent to his studies in medieval literature and most of the medieval writers are working from this same scheme um, they're working from Boethius and Aristotle and the same ideas that have been kicked around here. So in some sense the idea of friendship doesn't change much because the people who value it are looking to the same texts as Aristotle. Um, nothing changed. It was calcified. It's stuck in history. Um, but I think another part of this is that anyone who feels compelled to write about friendship usually does out of a first-hand experience. 
Um, like C.S. Lewis, it's very obvious he's writing about his experience with the Inklings. Montaigne, like he explicitly talks about his friend who he who has just passed away and now he really misses. Um, even Seneca and Aristotle seem to be drawing from specific experiences, specific friendships. Um, this is, as Aristotle is pointing out here in the Nicomachean Ethics, something that is very rare, very unique, and very powerful. Um, and I find it even more striking that many of these writers are writing about friendship with death kind of hanging over them. Um, Seneca, who I don't believe we're going to read this semester, specifically has a letter that he writes on the occasion of talking about you know, one of his friend's deaths. Um, Montaigne, it's the same deal. Um, notice the occasion for why we are writing in those cases. That friendship is something that we talk about specifically when it is stripped away from us. Maybe that's because we can see it at its most clear at that moment. Um, but enough of this, you know, preface and stuff. Let's actually talk about what Aristotle is doing, the whole project of the Nicomachean Ethics, and how that feeds into his discussion of friendship, so we can talk about chapters 8 and 9. Um, so first off, we need to start where Aristotle starts. Like, what is the project of an ethics in the first place? What even is ethics? Um, typically, in philosophical circles, we understand philosophy as having sort of different sub-disciplines within the, the like, umbrella of philosophy. Um, what are frequently known as the five branches of philosophy. Um, in Plato, you'll notice that we spend most of our time talking not about how love should be conducted, how people should love one another, but instead what love looks like in practice. Um, this is what we philosophers would usually think of as metaphysics. We are describing a phenomenon that exists out in the world somewhere. Um, metaphysics is kind of a bad word for it because Aristotle actually is the creator of the term metaphysics, and in Greek it literally just means the book that comes after the physics because, like, Aristotle wrote the physics and then he wrote the metaphysics, so it's literally like physics part two. Um, in general, though, philosophers are, would generally see that metaphysics is kind of the study of the things that we observe and phenomena that we come into contact with, but specifically the stuff that can't be scientifically quantified. Um, the physics of Aristotle is very much demoted, devoted to the same kind of stuff that Newton would write about in the Principia Mathematica. He's writing about you know, the laws of attraction, or the laws of motion, things like that. In the metaphysics, Aristotle is devoted more to talking about things like free will, or whether or not God exists, or how the mysterious spheres of the universe operate. He's talking about things that are, that are more abstract, more, you know, like either high-level physics stuff, like Big Bang, universe, you know, electron theory, that sort of thing. Um, He's talking about things that we cannot witness as easily, and as a result, that's kind of fallen in the, the purview of philosophy um, because these are unobservable phenomena in most cases. Um, so, metaphysics is probably what Plato is doing in the symposium, and we will see other writers doing metaphysics in one sense or another, like talking about the way that the universe is constituted, um, like Nick. When we talk about love in that descriptive fashion, um, we are talking about metaphysics in most cases. Uh, the second sort of branch of philosophy that we're going to run into pretty frequently, especially later on in the class, because it was very much the preoccupation of um, the moderns especially, is uh, epistemology. 
And epistemology is basically the study of the mind, episteme in the Greek. Um, and this may sound like it's kind of ambiguous. Um, this is very different from psychology, the study of like the mind in terms of you know psychiatric circles. Um, psych psychology, psychiatry, however you sort of want to want to frame that, is very much the study of the the mind as it responds to stimuli, like the mind as it is an observable thing, ranging wildly from like neuroscience, the business of actually studying how brains work, to sort of how um, how mental illness can be diagnosed and, and sort of treated, um, again, in this sort of medical, scientific, observable phenomenon way. Um, epistemology, by contrast, is primarily devoted to the way that the mind works in terms of how does knowledge work. Um, like, how does knowledge work? What, what, what constitutes knowing whether something is true? How does the understanding work? Like, how does logic influence us. Um, even to some degree this could pro probably be uh, assumed to include like philosophy of language. How do we speak about things? What do words mean? What is our relationship to the words that we speak? Um, what is meaning in that sense? And the discussion of what is love is going to bump into epistemology for sure as well. Um, as philosophers sort of move from seeing love as this overarching external phenomenon that just sort of carries off human beings, the way that the god Eros is sort of described as, as operating in many of the speeches that we saw in the symposium. Um, as that moves from love as sort of a personal activity, as a sort of character of the mind when love stops being like this outside force that takes possession of us and instead this internal force that causes us to behave in new and interesting ways that's when the discussion of love will move from metaphysics this overarching thing to epistemology this thing that our mind does um, studying love will become studying the mind, studying how we fall in love with people, why we fall in love with people, how this affects our perspective on the world, things like that. Um, but what we are doing here is the third branch, ethics. Um, and we are definitely going to be running into ethics a lot in this class. Like, you cannot talk about love and friendship and the sort of ways of being a loving friend um, or a lover or any of that without getting into the business of ethics. Um, ethics is, broadly speaking, the study of behavior. What is right and wrong? What should we do versus what should we not do? Um, and as a result, like, ethics is very much its own distinct branch of philosophy, frequently separate from everything else that is going on. Uh, like, right now in philosophical circles, there are very much two schools of thought about how philosophy should, should be conducted. Um, the analytic school and the continental school. And we'll get more into that as we get on later in the class. But it's worth noting that while analytic and continental scholars very much disagree on the subject of how should metaphysics operate or how should epistemology operate. Generally speaking, they're both kind of on the same page about ethics. Um, ethics hasn't changed as a discipline all that much. There have been a lot of changes insofar as how we do it, what we take as valuable, what our culture uh, regards as important to do or not to do. Um, there are lots of new and different attitudes towards ethics, new innovations, but generally speaking, we haven't sort of completely raised the discipline to the ground and started fresh. Like, metaphysics for analytic scholars looks totally different than metaphysics the way that Plato and Aristotle are doing it. Um, 
and even like arguably most analytic philosophers reject the idea of metaphysics altogether. They don't think that there's anything to be done there. It is a useless discipline for most of them. Um, so, you know, it's been, like, whether or not we should do metaphysics is actually part of the discussion going on in philosophy right now. Um, by contrast, everyone kind of agrees that ethics is still a thing. People may disagree about how much ethics we can do, or, you know, what ethics should look like, like what language we should be using, um, whether or not we have sort of universal standards to judge by. All of those things are still very much up in the air, but everyone knows what ethics is. Everyone has the same idea of what ethics should, should be doing. That's pretty straightforward. Um, now, the term ethics is, again, Greek, like Aristotle is very much coining here in the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, it comes from the term ethos, meaning like personal virtue or personal sort of worth. Um, ethics, therefore, is how to be most worthy as a person. Um, and notice that this is sort of Aristotle's whole approach. Like where ethics nowadays primarily focuses on the modern scheme where it's like action focused, like is this a good thing to do or is it a bad thing to do? Is it okay to kill a person in order to harvest their organs and save 10 lives or is it a bad thing to do that? And if it's a good thing, why? And if it's a bad thing, why? Um, by contrast, Aristotle would not be interested in these sorts of questions. Um, notice that his focus is entirely on being the best kind of person you can be. Um, he is not interested in, you know, if your friend comes to you and says, let's overthrow the state, should you do it, yes or no? Um, which is actually a question that, like, Cicero is going to entertain to some degree. Um, Aristotle is much more interested in what does it mean to be a good friend? Like, how do you be a good friend? What do you do for them? If the friendship is equal, what does it look like? If it's, dis if it's unequal, what does it look like? If you are, you know, responsible for a person, what does that look like? Whereas if somebody else is responsible for you, what does that look like? That's the direction that Aristotle is much more interested in talking about. He is much more interested in friendship as a function of personal virtue and personal sort of... Um, excellence, to use the kind of Greek-ish term. Um, and this is spelled out right at the beginning of the text, so I sort of want to recap what Aristotle's project is doing according to chapters 1 and 2, which obviously we're not reading, um, but again, which are so important to understanding the sort of goal here. Um, first, for a contextual sort of glimpse, um, the Nicomachean Ethics is what it says on the box. Like, Aristotle is writing an ethics to, as most scholars seem to think, his son Nicomachus. Um, Nicomachus needs direction in life. Aristotle, of course, being Aristotle, decides that the best way to solve this problem is to write a book for him. Um, so here is the ethics as given to Nicomachus so he will live a good life. Um, but the central question that, that Aristotle sort of leads with like, before we can get into how to be a good person, how to, you know, achieve personal excellence, Aristotle is very interested in the question, what is all of this for? Like, why do ethics? What is the goal of ethics? And by extension, what is the goal of human life? Which is obviously one of the really big philosophical questions that loom over all ethical discussion, but also, you know, it, it's just you have to know this. It's foundational. Like, in order to be able to talk about what a person needs to do, what they should or should not do, you have to sort of take into account the, well, what are we doing it for? 
Um, like anytime you say, I need to do something, it is secretly contingent. I need to do X because I want to have Y. I need to come to class today because I want to have, you know, a, a diploma. I want to have a good job. Um, you can't just like stack on needs forever without any explanation. Um, at the end of the day, you have to have some purpose behind your action, which means you have to have some purpose underlying human life. What is the goal of my existence is the first question you have to ask in order to say, you know, should I come to class or should I not come to class? It, should I get a good job or should I not get a good job? Should I, you know, make lots of money or should I not make lots of money? Um, the, all of these questions can't be answered until you have, well, what is your aspiration? What is the goal of your life? Um, and because we're dealing with the ancient Greeks here, it is assumed by Aristotle, just across the board, Plato would assume the same, um, that all human beings have the same goal. Um, like, by observing nature, all of the Greeks generally agree that all things have a purpose of some sort or another. Um, Aristotle even sort of formalizes this in his theory of the five causes. Like he is saying, you know, everything that exists, exists for a reason, for a purpose, was designed to some end, some telos, as the Greeks put it. Um, so then the question, what is the purpose of human existence? What are we all here for? What are we all doing here? Is a, both a legitimate question, a question that has an answer, and a question that needs to be answered. Like, all of these things really strike, you know, Aristotle as being of the first order of importance at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics. Um, fortunately, the answer is also pretty immediately straightforward. Um, Aristotle immediately says that, like, okay, well, you know, you ask anyone what is the purpose of human existence, and they will all give you the same answer. Happiness. Everybody wants to be happy, and everybody who is happy needs nothing else, and everybody who, you know, wants something other than happiness wants it specifically for the purpose of getting happiness. Why do people want lots of, lots of money? So they will be happy. Why do people want a good job? So they will be happy. Why do people want, you know, an education? So they will be happy. Like, nobody asks the question, why do you want to be happy? Everybody would just look at them with a sort of puzzled look on their face, because happiness is its own end. It's something that we want in and for itself. So the entire goal of human existence is happiness. But we should definitely make a note here that the translation isn't one-to-one. -one. Um, when, when contemporary Americans talk about happiness, we're talking about a feeling, a sensation. Happy as opposed to sad. And yes, it is all-consuming. We all do want to be happy, and we all do want to be happy all the time, and we all do want to be happy in and for itself. Like, nobody asks you, um, you know, why do you want to be happy? Like, everybody just tacitly understands it is better to be happy than unhappy. We are all aspiring towards this state, this feeling. But importantly for Aristotle, happiness is not just a feeling. Um, the Greek word that he's using here is eudaimonia, which is basically, like, literally translated as good-spiritedness. Um, you, the prefix, meaning good, daimon, meaning spirit. Um, eudaimonia is therefore, like, to have the best spirit. Um, it is probably more accurately translated excellence, in the sense of, like, personal excellence. So eudaimonia is not just about feeling good, it's about being good. It's about perfecting yourself.
Um, which is, again, sort of linked to the fact that Aristotle sees the goal of ethics as being about virtue, as about becoming the best version of yourself, the best human being you can be, a perfected human, an excellent human, as opposed to sort of quibbling about specific actions. By Aristotle's lights, you don't need to worry about specific actions, whether it's right or wrong to do X, Y, or Z, because if you are virtuous, if you have instilled in yourself habits of virtue, um, as soon as you are faced with a dilemma of that nature, as soon as you're faced with the question, should I do X or should I do Y, you as a virtuous person will be able to quickly and decisively choose the right answer. Um, and that might look different for different people, as Aristotle will point out, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Um, Again, happiness is not just a feeling, happiness is about self-perfection. It is something you accomplish, not something that happens to you. You are not a passive recipient of happiness in Aristotle's sense. You are an active, like, you were an active participant. You were actively seeking it for yourself. You were actively training yourself to be happy. You were actively becoming happy with everything that you do and with all of your efforts. That's the way that it's supposed to be framed. Um, and I think that this is a valuable perspective to keep in mind. If anything, I think Aristotle's got the right idea and we've got the wrong one on this one. Um, we tend to see happiness as, again, something that we're not involved in. Like, happiness is entirely the result of, you know, did I have a good day at school today? Or did I get the job that I was looking for? Or, you know, did I win the lottery today? Like, that's frequently how it's framed, as though happiness is something that you just sort of stumble across, or that happens to you, or that is entirely outside of your control. Aristotle, by contrast, starts from the assumption that it has to be something that is under your control. Whatever is best can't be something that is just left up to fate to decide. Aristotle is kind of equivocal on this. He goes back and forth. He has some trouble figuring this out. He very much points out that on the one hand, you are in control of your happiness, and it is something that you completely, you know, have up to your own devices. But on the other hand, he recognizes sometimes shit happens. Um, he uses the example of Priam, the, the king of Troy during the Trojan War. According to legend, Priam had like 100 sons and daughters. He had this massive city that was incredibly wealthy and considered like the greatest in the empire. His sons were all virtuous and his daughters were all beautiful and, you know, Priam himself was wise and a good king and he had everything going for him. Nobody in their right mind would have said that Priam is unhappy. He had literally everything that life offers. But, then Troy fell, 99 of his 100 sons and daughters were killed in the process, the city was overthrown, all his wealth was taken away from him, and his, he watched many of his children die before his very eyes, and he was, according to the legend, killed at the altar in his own city by the son of his most hated enemy, Neoptolemus, son of Achilles. Like, Priam died awfully. And as a result, Aristotle is forced to admit that there's some truth to the statement that you can call no man happy until he is dead. And it frustrates him. Because from a rational perspective, Aristotle is convinced happiness has to be something attainable. It has to be something that we can control, something that is independent, something that makes us self-sufficient. Somebody who is, who is happy should be incapable of becoming unhappy. Um, and yet Aristotle is forced to admit that certain reverses are just too big a deal to sort of 
attribute to somebody else's, you know, fault. And that's kind of the key here. Um, and I think that this is actually a really important point for the way that our culture talks about happiness as well. Like, on the one hand, we recognize that you have to take responsibility for your own happiness. And there is wisdom in the fact that you can't just, like, wait for good things to happen to you. You have to go out and make them happen. Um, there is wisdom to the idea that, you know, you need to sort of change your disposition in order to be happy and not just sort of dwell stinking in your own unhappiness. Uh, but at the same time, like, this is not totally true. Like, yes, a person who is miserable may at least in part be responsible for their own misery, but if that person is poor due to circumstances outside their control, or if they're, you know, horribly cut off from their friends, or if, you know, something really terrible happens to them, like they're maimed in a horrible accident, you know, that's not something that they could necessarily control, and you can't blame them for being unhappy if they feel this overwhelming despair at losing the things that have made their lives worthwhile. Like, that's not their fault. So on the one hand, you know, both, on the one hand, you are responsible for your happiness. On the other hand, you're not responsible for your misery in certain cases. And Aristotle struggles with this, and we struggle with this. Like, to some degree, this actually is a really important, like, component of the whole Republican-Democrat divide and the sort of vehemence that each perspective looks at them. Uh, Republicans insist, we are responsible for your own ha happiness. If you are miserable, it's your own damn fault, and you should be ashamed of yourself. On the other hand, Democrats very much recognize that a lot of the people who are unhappy in our society are unhappy because of things that are totally outside of their control, and even something that Republicans are somewhat responsible for inflicting upon them. Um, both have truth to them. There is truth to taking accountability for your own happiness. There is also truth for recognizing when circumstances are in fact responsible for making you miserable. Do not blame yourself if sickness causes you to be incapacitated or miserable. Do not blame yourself if you are depressed because of trauma or things outside of your control. But on the other hand, do not wallow in your misery if you could potentially take control of the situation and make your circumstances better. Um, both of these things are true to some degree, and the fact that Aristotle struggles with them should give us an indication that Aristotle recognizes this. They have always been true. For 2,500 years, it is true that you need to take some active participation in your happiness, and then for 2,500 years, it has been true that circumstances can sometimes kick you out of happiness and there's nothing you can do about it. What Aristotle ultimately concludes is that the perfected person, the eudaimonia, the happy person in the sense of, you know, attaining to, like, personal excellence, that person is better equipped to deal with bad circumstances than the person who is not. A truly happy person is the one who looks on the bright side even in the worst of circumstances, who is more resistant to the fact that bad things have happened to them. But it is also not a person who's just in denial about their circumstances or who is putting on, you know, just a brave face, so to speak. Like, they are legitimately defended against these pitfalls. If, you know, somebody does get sick with some debilitating disease, their response will not be complete despair and everything that I have is worthless. Their response will be 
to sort of, you know, knuckle under and try and do the best they can under the circumstances while recognizing the fact that, yeah, this sucks, and it's okay to not be happy in this situation. You cannot force yourself through something that awful, or at the very least, you cannot just, like, will yourself to make the best of your circumstances when something truly relentlessly awful has happened. It's a very delicate balance, and Aristotle recognizes this. Um, yes, I'm going to emphasize, because Aristotle emphasizes it, that we need to take some responsibility for our happiness, just as we need to take an active role in our friendships, um, in both preserving them and sort of protecting them. I stressed that out at the outset, that I was going to be more interested in the ethics underlying love and friendship than in a lot of the sort of metaphysical or descriptive qualities, because the ethics of friendship, the ethics of love, are something we can in fact control, exert some power over, and hopefully do better or worse at. That's concrete in a way that a lot of the rest of this discussion simply isn't. Uh, but at the same time, keep in mind that that comes with the caveat that sometimes shit happens. Sometimes you have a friend and they are brain damaged or something and they cannot be what they used to be. It's then not your fault if your relationship changes. Like that happened in my own life on several occasions, honestly, now that I think about it. Um, that's not on you to fix. Um, but at the same time, like, do not just disregard a friendship for reasons that are trivial or unimportant. Like, yes, there are big reversals out there, things that you absolutely cannot control. At the same time, you should try and do the best that you can, given the circumstances you find yourself in. That's the sort of moderate truth of the matter. Um, so if happiness is what we're aspiring to, the next question that Aristotle is kind of facing after he sort of discusses all of this about like whether happiness is good or bad, how much control we have over it, can we call a man happy before he's dead, all of those things. The second thing he turns his attention to is how does virtue work? Like what are the mechanics by which a good person is good? Um, and the way that he basically describes this, and I stress this because it is especially important to our discussion of, of friendship here, um, is that you build habits of virtue. Um, Virtue is not something that you just have or don't have the way that Socrates frequently discussed it in the Mino. Um, Aristotle is pushing back against that idea and saying that virtue is something that we get better at as time goes on if we are intentionally and determinedly like cultivating those virtues. On the one hand, he stresses that virtue is usually in moderation which should already be reminding us of the symposium and how Diatima stresses that love is the go-between, that love is, you know, not the thing that is wise, but rather the thing that loves wisdom and seeks it actively, which is still better than ignorance, even though it's not as good as actually having wisdom. Um, Aristotle is describing a very similar relationship here. He says that if you want to have courage, which is one of his primary virtues, the best way to get courage is not to sort of like sit there and think to yourself, I will be courageous, I will be courageous, but to go out and seek out circumstances that allow you to practice your courage, to be courageous. But at the same time, that courage is nestled between two extremes. You don't want to be reckless. You don't want to just like charge in a battle half-cocked before everybody else is ready to go because you're just going to get yourself killed and it would just be dumb to do that and you don't want to be a coward you don't want to like flee at the first sign of danger even when your brothers and friends and comrades are going out standing firm yes there is an appropriate time to run away in battle and the courageous person will know when that appropriate time is and go at that appropriate time but they will not go before that time and they will not wait too long 
That's the key. And Aristotle emphasizes that this varies very much on the circumstances. That moderation, that perfect happy medium that you were seeking out when you were seeking virtue is going to vary from person to person in some cases. Like what is courageous for a strong man might be different for someone who is weak and not terribly good in battle. Um, likewise, it's going to change from circumstance to circumstance. Like when it is good to continue pushing forward when you are winning the battle, but it is good to retreat prudently when you are losing it, lest you just be another casualty and not be able to fight another day. Um, all of these circumstances have to be taken into account. And Aristotle doesn't pretend like, you know, this is easy. Um, in fact, he's stressing, you know, when in doubt, err on the side that, you know, you are least likely to make the mistake on. So if most people are inclined to cowardice, better to accidentally be a little reckless than it is to accidentally be a little cowardly. Um, better to stay in the battle a little longer than is appropriate than, you know, flee at the first sign of trouble and err on the side of cowardice. Um, so even Aristotle knows there's no way to perfectly engage this. And in fact, what Aristotle stresses is that ultimately, all, knowing when it, you have hit the, the happy medium, being able to hit it most accurately requires one virtue that is not moderate, something that you do need in like as much quantity as you possibly can, namely practical wisdom. Um, wisdom, practical wisdom, the, the ability to like sort of gauge a circumstance and know what the appropriate response to it is, is something that Aristotle insists that everybody has to cultivate, everybody needs to practice, everybody needs to seek as much as possible. Um, so keep this in mind especially because of friendship. Friendship is very much a relationship that is set in these same circumstances, in these same conditions. Um, there are friendships that are permanent and eternal and enduring, but they are rare. They are not going to happen very often. You can't have a lot of them going on at once. And for the most part, they're even going to be relative to you and the other person. Like, it's not going to be something that you can have with everyone. Um, so you have to be careful in your determination about friendships. Um, so let's go ahead and jump right into uh, book 8 and 9 now. Uh, book 8 today, book 9 tomorrow. Let's talk about what exactly these friendships look like and how they work in this greater overall context. First, notice that he starts talking about friendship from the perspective of happiness. Um, like, you know, the, the very first thing he stresses is after that, the next topic to discuss is friendship, for it is a virtue or involves virtue and besides is most necessary for our life, for no one would choose to live without friends even if he had all the other goods. Notice that kind of the key question that Aristotle has been sort of pushing back against, again, if, if happiness is supposed to be something that you have or don't have, something that is independent, something that is self-sustaining, Aristotle is kind of keen to stress that, you know, friends don't fit into that scheme. Like, if you are perfected, you don't need anybody else to, to help you be perfected or to be less perfected. Um, this is actually something the Greeks struggle with a lot. Like, this is a question that a lot of them kind of run into. Um, you know, even in the symposium, you'll notice, like, Plato is asking that question, you know, if you are virtuous, why do you need another virtuous person? Like, you're already virtuous, you're already perfect, you're already eudaimonia. Um, so what the heck are friends for in that case? Um, as Plato is sort of kicking around the idea, he's, he's stressing that, you know, do similar things attract similar things? Do opposites attract? Like, Aristotle is dealing with this question as well. Um, 
But the key that Aristotle comes to is that nobody wants to live a life without friends. Um, it is an excess, in a sense, but it is an excess that contributes to one's greatness. It makes a person better than being perfect, in a sense, which doesn't make sense, and the Greeks know that this doesn't make sense, and they're frustrated by the fact that it doesn't make sense, but it's more true than the alternative that a happy person doesn't need friends. Like, that's that doesn't make any sense. Like, maybe it makes sense rationally, but it certainly doesn't make sense experientially. Nobody in their right minds, no matter how happy or virtuous they are, decides to live an isolated existence without friends. Everybody needs friends. Everybody seeks them out. Um, so Aristotle just sort of dismisses this. Like, all right, fine. We just know that this is the case. We don't know why. We, don't, we can't explain it totally rationally. Apparently, the process of self-perfection includes having other people perfecting themselves in company with you. Um, and he notices that there are many different circumstances that this might appeal to. Rich people and holders of powerful positions seem to need friends because you have to display your prosperity and you know use it to benefit others. Um, young people need friends because they need guidance. Old people need friends because they need support. Like, everybody needs friends. Um, this is always something that is helpful and useful and you know, makes your life better in some way. Um, friends necessarily contribute to your happiness, even if it is just an excess, even if it's not something you, like, need in the sense that you need, like, air, water, money, you know, good health, all of those things. Um, but notice, too, that Aristotle very quickly goes from friendships as we understand them, like, in this sort of abstracted, you know, anyone can be friends with anyone sense, to immediately talking about familial relationships. Further, a parent would seem to have a natural friendship for a child, and a child for a parent, not only among human beings, but also among birds and most kinds of animals. So when we're talking about philia here, this apparently includes familial relationships. Um, and Aristotle's actually going to dedicate a lot of time to talking about familial relationships, especially when he's talking about superiority and inferiority, um, modeling relationships of friends of disproportionate wealth against, like, the father and son relationship, things like that. For the Greeks, this is friendship, too. It bleeds into one's familial relations. And I know that we generally, as a culture, contrast the two. Like, nowadays, you watch enough Marvel movies and you'll very much get indoctrinated with this idea that, you know, family is the people you decide to be friends with rather than the people you're born and connected to. Um, this is worth remarking upon, that the Greeks have a very different attitude towards family. Um, family bonds are seriously important to the Greeks. Um, as we talked about in the symposium lectures, you know, the father-son relationship is sort of foundational to Greek identity. Um, the father is the head of the household. He provides for his entire family, for all of his dependents. You know, this is considered the appropriate way of doing things. And the proper response to that generosity on the part of the father is to love him. Um, and notice that, like, even when we get further on in this chapter, uh, like, towards... Um, section 8, uh, section 812, um, on page 45 or so, he starts talking about the friendship within families, paternal friendship, you know, mother and child, brothers and sisters, so on and so forth. Um, and at all times, he seems to assume that friendship springs naturally from your relations. Um, since your father raises you, you will be friends with him. That bond is just 
right there, cannot be sort of disregarded or ignored, cannot be overturned. Um, this is a very different attitude from our cultural perspective, where families are frequently the people you are trying to escape. Uh, where, you know, your father or mother or whatever your, your living situation is, like, those people control you and you resent it. Uh, and the rather than seeing it in terms of, you know, what they are doing for you, your father has given you life and therefore it is an act of tremendous generosity that you can never repay and therefore you spend all your life trying to repay him the way that the Greeks see it and the way that most ancient cultures see it. Like, we'll say the same thing in, in ancient China when we uh, run into the Eastern philosophy readings next week. Um, rather than seeing it that way, our culture sees that, like, we are sort of stuck with our family. We cannot help our family. We cannot choose our family. And as a consequence, since we cannot choose our family, we are not held responsible for their actions, and we are generally allowed to reject them when the time is right. Um, like, if we find out that our parents have radically different political alignments from us, or if they have a completely, you know, like wrong attitude towards how to live their lives or if they do bad things or if they're vicious our culture says then leave them like drop them and go just get out like do everything that you can to get out of your house and then find some place that suits you better um which i should stress is a radical departure from virtually every cultural perspective before this um and there are a lot of reasons for this, like stuff that we probably can't get into that deeply right now, not least of which is sort of the the prevalence and the, the attention that our culture focuses to like parental and spousal abuse, which honestly back in ancient Greece would have been happening all the time and you were supposed to just like suck it up and deal with it. That's just the way that culture worked. Um, if your father beat the crap out of you, then that's just kind of the way it goes. Um, but you'll notice that Aristotle is actually going to flip the script in the next chapter and talk about what happens when a son drags his father out of the house and beats the crap out of him. Um, like, this is apparently something that is also socially acceptable in Greek circles. Violence within the, the confines of the household, at least, you know, non-lethal violence, is sort of considered acceptable and private and therefore nobody gets involved with it. No one can tell a father how to run his household, but no one can tell, you know, whoever's running the household how to run their household, because, you know, their household is, in effect, their kingdom. Nobody else has sway there. Um, there are no police in Greek circles, although you can be socially ostracized if you are treating your family badly, and many Greeks will. Um, there are plenty of examples of this. Um, but let's not get too caught up in this. What I do want to stress here is that Aristotle assumes familial bonds are also friendship bonds. Um, he assumes that just the sheer proximity to one another is a sort of transcendent friendship in its own right. Um, he does not distinguish between the two. And the Greeks would use the same term, philia, in both cases. The love you have for a friend is the same as the love you have for your father. Um, and notice what that means in this context. Like, this is contrasted with eros, the erotic love that you have for, you know, a lover or a beloved, your wife or your concubine. Um, like, seeing as the Greeks primarily use just these two terms for love, agape being sort of reserved for certain platonic circles and again later for Christianity, um, this idea of friendship Philia really would probably be more wide or more 
appropriately translated as affection. Um, like, it's tricky because we don't have a one-to-one -one translation here. Um, but it's important to notice that when Aristotle talks about friendship or liking one another, he's using the word philia, and that doesn't necessarily mean friendship in the way that we are specifically talking about it, where we contrast our friends and family, where we specifically put them in separate boxes, separate experiences, and therefore our relationship to them is very different. Um, as much as we may say that blood is thicker than water, the assumption there is that, again, we are contrasting family with friends, as though the relationship with a friend is water and the relationship to family is blood. Um, that's something that Aristotle would not have understood. Blood is water, as far as he is concerned, as far as that metaphor would work in his time. You know, yes, of course you love your friends with the same kind of love as you love your family, but he would acknowledge that the reason that you have those friendships would be different. Um, proximity is a huge component of friendship for Aristotle, and since you are always in close proximity with your family, you always have something akin to friendship with them, while friendships of purely utility or friendships purely of pleasure will come and go just because your needs and your, your interests will change over time. Um, family stays. Aristotle would agree with that. Um, but let's talk about these, these types of friendship outside of this distinction between family and friends, which, again, Aristotle doesn't seem to regard terribly strongly. Um, he starts off with a whole bunch of different questions, like he's talking about friendship and politics. He's asking about similarity and difference in regard to friendship. He's talking about the... the can friendships occur among the vicious? This is pretty typical for, for Aristotle. In the first chapter of a section that he's going to introduce, he will usually ask a bunch of questions and then address those questions later on in the chapter. Um, so here he brings up all of these questions and he will in fact address them as time goes on. He's just raising them here so they have sort of a frame for us to talk about. It's in chapter 2 towards the... Um, towards the bottom of page 31 and on to page 32 in our textbook, that he starts talking about friendship and the different kinds, the different species of friendship um, that he observes. And he gets to this by observing what is it that people want. Like, using his, again, primary goal of talking about happiness, like using the framework that he's already established from chapters prior, he is very keen to talk about friendship in terms of goods, things that make us happy. We make friends in order to achieve happiness, and therefore we you know, can expect to see the same things that we want to be happy to show up in our friendships. Um, and the three categories that he very much comes up with are the things that are good, like the things that are actually good. Um, we love what is good for us, is basically how he puts it. But also that we frequently have things that are good for us specifically and conditionally, but there are also things that are always good for us, unconditionally good for us. There are things that are always good for us, like, you know, food in some sense, personal virtue, courage, temperance, all the virtues that Aristotle would talk about, but also there are things that are just good for us in the moment, like we need more money, or, you know, we are engaged in some kind of trade and we need somebody who has a boat. Like, 
those things are good for us in the moment according to what we are trying to accomplish in order to achieve eudaimonia through the more permanent things. Um, there is also, of course, what appears good to us, the stuff that we chase after because we think it's good for us whether or not it actually is. And these three categories, the things that are unconditionally good and always good, the things that are conditionally good and the things that are useful in their specific circumstances, and the things that are pleasant, the things that appear good, these are going to be the three types of friendships. On the one hand, you have friendships of utility, um, that is to say, friendships that are useful. Uh, the example I like to use is, you know, it is a friendship like when you are a teenager and you make friends with the person who has the hot new video game console or who has a pool because you want to spend your summers hanging out in your friend's pool or playing their video games and yet like if in fact that person moves away or something you just don't have anything to sort of bond over anymore so your friendship kind of falls apart that's a friendship of utility um let's be friends because it is mutually beneficial to us you have a boat i have things to trade let's be friends um, I will give you a reason and a, a cause to make money, and you will give me the means to take my goods and make money out of them. That's friendship of utility. Um, the second kind of friendship is the friendship of things that appear good to us, namely pleasure. Um, and Aristotle stresses that there are plenty of friendships of pleasure. And this is not reserved for just erotic relationships, although that's certainly a component of what he's talking about. Like, he frequently refers to lovers, especially the Erastes and Romanos pederastic relationship that we saw in, in the symposium. This is obviously a component of friendships of pleasure. Um, the lover, you know, is pleased by the beloved. The beloved receives benefits. They receive these pleasures, these graces from the lover. Um... That is all totally cool with Aristotle, but it also refers to friendships of people who please us in the sense of like a social situation. Um, people who are witty, who are clever, who make us laugh, um, who are, you know, who we like hanging around with for one reason or another. Um, those are also friendships of pleasure. Uh, like even in the sen uh, sort of almost erotic sense that if we make friends with somebody who is really attractive and we like to look at them and we keep them around because they're nice to look at even if we never make a move on them that would also constitute a friendship of pleasure um, for Aristotle. So friendships of pleasure can extend beyond just eros but are not restricted from eros we should stress. Um, friendships of pleasure basically involve anyone who we enjoy spending time with, um, but not, let's stress, for their own sake. The key is, how do they make us feel, not how do we want to help them become better people. That is reserved for the third kind of friendship, these complete or virtuous friendships. Friendships founded on the fact that we have and are both searching for virtue. Um, Remember, according to Aristotle's sort of understanding of virtue, virtue is something that is permanent. By having it, by cultivating it, by making the habit of virtue, we are essentially making ourselves better in a way that is unconditional, in a way that is permanent. Uh, this is not like people who think that money is the highest goal in life. If you spend all your time trying to get money, you will never have enough money. There is no line where you cross it and you're like, and now I have all the money I need and I never have to make any more money again. Like, just look at Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or any of the multi-billionaires at this point. Like, 
obviously there is no endpoint for the potential of wanting money. Uh, likewise, there's no endpoint to the potential for wanting honor, or for wanting fame, or for wanting power. Like, no matter how much power you have, there will always be more power to be gained, and you will always feel like you need to have more power. Um, which is why Aristotle stresses that virtue is found not in excess, but in moderation, and knowing what is enough for you. Um, but the virtues, like you cannot have enough courage because courage is already a moderation. It is already a medium point. Um, so therefore, having a friend of virtue means that you're forming a permanent, lasting, and eternal bond. Because, you know, one day you're not going to need your friend's boat anymore, your friendship of utility is entirely contingent, entirely conditional on the fact that you have something your friend wants and your friend has something that you want. Likewise, friendships of pleasure are entirely conditional. They bring you pleasure, and when they stop bringing you pleasure, you're not going to be friends with them anymore. Um, you bring them pleasure, and when you stop giving them pleasure, they are not going to like you anymore. But because you will always be trying to cultivate courage, because you will always be trying to cultivate temperance, because you will always be trying to become a better person, anytime that you make a friend with somebody who is doing the same thing, who is also trying to be courageous, who is also trying to be wise, who is also trying to become the best possible version of themselves, that friendship endures. Unless one of you changes radically and no longer seeks virtue, as long as you are seeking virtue together, you will always have something in common. You will always bring joy and pleasure to one another. You will always be useful to one another because this kind of friendship embodies and in, like raises up all the other kinds of friendship that we've talked about. It is the culmination, the perfection of friendship. And it, as Aristotle stresses, this is what we are referring to when we usually talk about friends. Like we use, in the same way that when we said in the, the symposium that like when we talk about art, we frequently are referring to, you know, all artists, but free, like the general assumption is if you're talking about an artist, you're talking about a painter. Likewise, if you are talking about your friend, the assumption is that you're talking about one of these complete, perfect, virtuous friendships, although we casually use the term to refer to friendships of convenience, friendships of utility, friendships of pleasure, um, those sorts of things. Um, so again, this virtue friendship is the most true kind of friendship. It is the most perfect, perfected kind of friendship, the most complete kind of friendship. It is the friendship we all aspire to. Um, but that's not to say that we want to have a ton of virtue friendships. Aristotle is very quick to stress that we're a, we're probably not going to find a whole lot of people who are interested in living their lives like this. Um, virtue is a fairly rare gift, and the people who are pursuing it diligently are pretty rare as well. Most people are happy never being virtuous, even though they are not happy in the sense that Aristotle is talking about it. Like, this is the happiness of the drug addict who is just moving from fix to fix. That person is not happy in some kind of transcendent sense. They are just happy in the sense that they do not feel obliged to exert themselves to seek something better than what they have. And most people fall into this category. Like, I say that knowing full well that most of you listening to this would probably fall into this category. Like, not feeling like exerting yourself for the sake of virtue is worthwhile. It doesn't, you know, what's in it for you, you might ask. Um, for Aristotle, for the Greeks, for, you know, most classical philosophers, this is a sort of self-fulfilling question. 
Um, you will never be truly happy, Aristotle would argue, unless you are seeking virtue. If you are just, you know, rich and happy with your riches and, you know, your riches make you happy, you will always be in danger of losing them. Um, you will always want more than you have. Like, that will never bring you lasting real happiness. The only way that you can get lasting real happiness is through the pursuit of virtue. Aristotle, the Greeks, the Romans will all argue. Um, so I want to stress that at the outset. At the same time as everybody agrees that this is what we're all supposed to be searching for, very few people are actually going to do it. This is kind of an assumption that is set down in, in the Greek culture. It is much easier to just become a hedonist, living for temporary pleasures, um, it, than it is to actually like work hard at becoming more virtuous, even if eventually that work itself becomes rewarding and itself yields dividends. Um, that's what Aristotle is describing here. Um, so, Aristotle is not bad-mouthing the other kinds of friendship, though. He's not saying that, like, you shouldn't have friendships of utility or you shouldn't have friendships of pleasure. On the contrary, he's certainly saying that, like, everybody needs some of all three. Um, typically, you're only going to have maybe one, maybe, at the outside, two really true virtuous friends who you can share your life with, who you can seek virtue together with. If only because there's only so much time in the day, like... The sort of intimacy that is implied here requires living together. Like, he specifically says that. You know, you live with this friend. You go to the theater together. You spend all your time with one another. Like, this is the sort of relationship we're talking about. Maybe they do, in fact, live in your house in some of these cases. Um, that your, your sort of love of mutual virtue is that deep, that important to you. Um, like, this is the most important relationship of your life, as far as Aristotle is concerned. Because remember, like, if you were married in this culture, you're probably not even friends with your wife, in all likelihood. If you are, great, that's, that's cool, and that's what it should be, ideally, but, you know, it's not necessary. Frequently, you are just marrying, marrying for the sake of convenience. Um, you do, in fact, decide who you devote your time and energy to, as much as those familial bonds sort of incline you in that direction. Um, so if you have a true friend, we're talking about this as the most profound relationship of your life. Something that, you know, is never going to be replaced, that is never going to be sidetracked, that will always be your first priority. Um, Aristotle even emphasizes this at several points in the text. Like, he stresses that... Um, you know, in friendships of utility or in friendships of pleasure, you will occasionally have friends accusing each other or reproaching each other, like telling each other off, like, how could you be so stupid and not checking whether your boat had holes before you set off, set sailing with all of my trip, my trade goods? Like, obviously, this is a violation of our friendship. I count on you to provide a service for me and you in turn get the benefit of being able to ferry my goods around. You know, if you transgress that, then we have problems. We need to talk about things. Likewise, if you were not bringing me any pleasure, or if you were not bringing me sufficient pleasure, according to what I think that should look like, uh, friendships of pleasure will also occasionally find themselves yelling at each other. But friendships of virtue do not, according to Aristotle, because there's nothing to reproach each other for. Like, yes, if you're slipping away from the pursuit of virtue, maybe a gentle sort of prod in that direction would be good. But since, again, you aren't actually interested in your friend for what your friend is providing for you, but rather interested in your friend for their own sake, because they are, you know, beautiful and worthwhile and good in their own right, 
um, you are not upset when your friend chooses to do something that would otherwise be questionable. And in fact, you will, like, if in fact a rumor is starting to be circulated, like, oh, so-and-so, who is actually your friend, you know, did something really monstrous, you're more likely to, you know, say, no, that's ridiculous. I know that person so well that it's not possible that he could have done that. Um, it is entirely out of the realm of possibility. I would sooner go with my friend to the wall before the firing squad than take your stand against them. Um, and this is often how it looks like in classical cultures. Like this is the aspiration that friendship is trying to reach. Um, I will go into exile with my friend. I will be executed with my friend. Or at the very least, I will mourn with, with my executed friend and I will be upset at his execution and I will be incredibly upset with all of the people who caused this to happen. <coughs> Plato. Um, notice that this is the sort of bond we're talking about here. This is a bond that transcends your responsibilities to your you know, family relationships. It transcends your responsibilities to your government. It translates it transcends your responsibility even to religion in some degree. Um, your friendship is immutable, the way that Aristotle is talking about it here. And yes, it's rare. And yes, you can only have one or two of these because necessarily, if you've got like three or four, you can't spend enough time with any one of these friends to get to that level of intimacy. But also, they're going to make demands on each other. They're going to like start saying, you know, hey, why are you still friends with that guy? Are you sure he's as virtuous as you think he is? And you're going to have to make a tough decision. Uh, so these friendships of virtue are profound, intimate. They are seriously all-consuming. Like they are the single most important relationship that you have in your life at any given moment. Um, and will continue to be so because they are enduring, because they are eternal. Like you're not going to get to see two of these in all likelihood just because of the sheer odds and the sheer practicality of the situation. And I want to stress that this is something that was rare in ancient Greece and admired, it is rare in our culture and probably not nearly as admired. Um, our culture is just not set up to have these friendships as anymore. Like, notice again that Aristotle is very much stressing, like, friends live with, e with each other. They're in constant proximity over large swaths of their life. Our culture is mobile in a way that the Greeks simply weren't. Like, remember, you know, in ancient Greece, in all likelihood, you're going to live and die in the same city. Like, you're going to go off to war with the same people who you live and die with. You're going to, you know, go on long journeys with the same people who you live and die with. Um, you will do it collectively. Like, you're not going to, you know, just because your job decided to move you to a different office, go from Athens to Thebes and end up living in Thebes for three years before you end up moving to Corinth or before you end up moving to Sparta or before you end up moving to who knows where. Like, that does happen and will get more common as we start looking at ancient Rome and at societies beyond. But right here in ancient Greece, like, Socrates lived and died in Athens. He went to war a couple of times, as Alcibiades recounts, and that's like the sole amount of time that he is out of there. Athens is his home in a way that we in our contemporary American society do not have homes. Like, they are rooted to the town, to the land, to the area in a way that we just aren't. Their family house will stand through all their lives and be passed on to their children and their children's children. We just don't have that. Like, America, at its very design document, did not have that. We are a nation of nomads and emigrants. 
Um, and also a bunch of Native Americans who we murdered in order to be nomads and immigrants, so good for us. Um, there are exceptions, of course. There are families that have lived in the same house in America for like two, three hundred years, but they are incredibly rare. And due to our society's emphasis on sort of going out and founding your own household and founding your own sort of life, we've very much gotten away from even that. Um, the idea is independence is our primary virtue, but it wasn't for the Greeks. It just wasn't. Um, like, even in Athens, which very much did emphasize independence and an individual expression that did give people the right to live their own lives and do it their own way and govern themselves according to their own desires, as much as they were all about independence, it is nothing compared to what we're doing. Um, it was more familial independence rather than, like, personal independence with every child going off and founding their own life. That's just not how it worked. Like, if you were the younger brother in a family in, in Athens, chances are you did find ways to sort of get out from under your, your brother's control of the household at various times. You probably would distinguish yourself by, you know, marrying into a richer family, or by going off to war and becoming an itinerant soldier, or by sort of throwing yourself into civic life in a way that your older brother is throwing themselves into maintaining the farm or maintaining the estate. Um, but at the same time, you are expected to be a part of the family. You are expected to to carry your share of the work. Um, you probably have a part of the estate that you are responsible for, like something has been delegated to you. You do not go off and found your own, your own estate. You do not leave the city-state in all likelihood. Um, there are exceptions, obviously. There have to be, and there always are. Um, but the assumption in Athenian society is that you are going to stay here. And as a consequence, these friendships are possible because you will say, see the same person every day for 50, 55 years in all likelihood. You grew up with this person as schoolfellows. You went to the gymnasium when you were youths. You probably like went off to war with each other multiple times and you've met the demos more times than you can count. You live your life together in close proximity, the same person, the same interests, the same sort of agendas. And if you are both good people searching virtue, you will naturally sort of bond together, seek it together, live your life together. Whereas nowadays, you know, like, I've moved two or three times in the course of my studies, and I'm living in a completely different town from where my parents are. I'm still about an hour away, which is closer than many can say. I know people who are, you know, living in Florida, having moved there from New York, or who, you know, started their lives in New Jersey and moved off to, you know, anywhere. California, um, Florida, Washington, you name it, the far points of the map. Um, I have friends who I went to, to college with who are living in France now, or in Australia for that matter. Like, the very ends of the earth are available to us. And on the one hand, we do have social media. We do have the ability to communicate them much with them much more frequently than the Greeks would have. You know, the Greeks didn't even know that Australia existed, much less be able to, like, take a Skype call every year or two. Um, but at the same time, it's not the same. I am not sharing my life with those people in the same way that the Greeks would have. We have many more less intimate friendships in our culture, but we have no intimate friendships of the level that the Greeks are talking about here. Um, or if we do, it is an incredibly rare occurrence. Um, like, extraordinarily rare. 
again, I told everyone not to self-diagnose, but I do want to sort of point out the cultural limitations here, and I do want to point out that I ask myself this question. Like, I do have close friends. I do have friends that I've stayed in touch with for a long time. I do have people that I could say that I share my life to get with, you know, over, you know, many years and stuff. But I hesitate to point to the same friendships that Aristotle and eventually Cicero were pointing to. It's just not the same. Um, it can't be. Like, unless you really go out of your way in our society to preserve those friendships, unless you really do dedicate, like, hours and hours in your week to preserving and keeping that going, it's not likely to. Um, like, it's something you have to do very deliberately because our society is designed to frustrate those efforts. Um, now, I won't say that it's designed to do that. Certainly, the, it's sort of like an accident of our culture's design. Or maybe it's not. One of the other things that I definitely want to draw attention to in this text is that Aristotle is very quick to connect friendship and not just sort of virtue and, and sort of living one's lives together, but friendship and government. Um, this is something we're going to run into surprisingly frequently in our class. Like, it is going to often be the case that writers are sort of connecting the ideas of friendship and the sort of interpersonal bonds that happen one person to another with the ideas of government and community at large. For Aristotle, the one is the picture of the other. Um, like, he literally talks about how there are three systems of government and then pairs them to the three kinds of friendship. Talks about how they interact with one another, how, how you know, each of the government structures sort of encourages some kind of friends while discouraging others. Um, Aristotle is very quick to point out that governments have friendships as a serious political issue. Um, so let's look at that passage. This is considerably further on in the text. This is around page 42 and 43, um, right around chapter 810. Um, he says, There are three species of political system, politeia, and an equal number of deviations, which are a sort of corruption of them. The first political system is kingship, the second aristocracy, and since the third rests on property, timema, it appears proper to call it a timocratic system, though most people usually call it a polity or politeia. The best of these is kingship, and the worst is democracy. Now, this is a really fascinating passage. Like, it's one that I think about surprisingly frequently, especially when I'm having political conversations with people. Because, of course, like, I'm more interested in what Aristotle 2,500 years ago has to say than any of our contemporary politicians. Um, but it's honestly worthwhile to take this into consideration, because the Founding Fathers of the United States, you know, as much as people agree or disagree about whether or not they had, like, you know, we want to have the Bible as the foundation of our of our government. Like, there's definitely arguments to be had both ways on that one. There are no arguments to be had over whether or not the Founding Fathers used the classical writers as their inspiration. They absolutely did. Um, no question. Like, you read any of the correspondence between, like, John Adams and Madison and Hamilton and any of the great writers, they are all extremely well-educated in the classics. They are constantly referring to important episodes in Greek and Roman history. They are constantly referring to the Nicomachean Ethics or to Cicero or to Marcus Aurelius. This is the foundation for the government that they designed. So, when we are talking about the way that Aristotle views friendships, it does have a direct application to our own government, as much as we may have gotten away from that in the 300 years since the founders created it. Um, this is very much 
at issue in the way that our government is designed and the way that it operates. Um, so let's talk about these three systems and their three deviations. Um, on the one hand, notice that each of the systems of government has its sort of mirror evil twin opposite. So we have Aristotle singing the praises of king kingship, which already we're probably like scratching our heads here. How could monarchy, kingship, be the best form of government? But notice the way that Aristotle talks about kingship in terms of beneficence, a benevolent and virtuous ruler. The king, apparently by definition, is someone who re feels responsible for his subjects, who specifically is beneficent to his subjects, who gives them gifts, who incorporates them into his power, who loves and cares for the people that he cares about. Um, now it's worth noting that by the time that Aristotle is writing, they, uh, Athens is a monarchy. Um, Aristotle is actually famously uh, Alexander the Great's teacher, his mentor, his professor, so to speak, in the same way that the sophists taught young men. Like, Aristotle has inherited the, the academy from Plato. The, this is the school that Plato founds after Socrates' death. Um, and now he is sort of in charge. Like, he runs philosophy in Athens at this point. Um, so naturally, when Alexander the Great conquers all of Greece, takes it over and, you know, is looking for someone to educate him, someone to sort of guide him, um, he takes naturally the foremost scholar in Greece, namely Aristotle. So they go off together and conquer the world, um, quite literally in this case. Um, it is noteworthy, though, that, like, Aristotle doesn't seem to be hedging about this. Um, like, the, the Athenian democracy is long dead at this point, and the Athenians are pretty confident that it should stay dead. Um, they didn't like their democracy all that much. As great as it was at its time, and as much as we associate sort of the golden age of classical Greece with the Athenian democracy, the Athenians themselves are kind of grumpy about the way that it went down. Like, it brought forward way too many tyrants way too quickly, um, and not nearly enough benevolent rulers. Like, Alcibiades totally manipulated the democracy into doing some terrible things when he sent their navy off on this boondoggle. Obviously, there were huge problems with the Athenian democracy. Um, and Aristotle recognizes this. He doesn't like it. Um, he is quick to put it in the worst category for government structure and instead raise up kingship. And I don't think he's doing it just to make his kings happy. Um, I think he's doing it because he honestly believes that this is the case, that things run more smoothly under a good king than they do under a bad democracy. But notice, too, that he's also quick to point out that tyrannies, which are sort of the mirror image of monarchy, are the worst kind of government. Kings, good kings, are the best rulers. They are authoritative, they have control over everything, and they do it right. They always choose the right thing because they're governed by virtue, because they're governed by the, the interest of the, the demos, by the interest of the people. They do the right thing. That's how we get these sort of famous benevolent leaders. You know, your your Catherine the Greats or your, you know, like, I don't even know in England, it feels like all of them are just a giant mess at this point. Like your Queen Elizabeth's holding the, the king to get, kingdom together. Um, I guess in both cases, one and two. Um, your Louis XIV's in France, the Sun King, you know, great and powerful ruler. Like, you have these sorts of historical notes about 
incredibly great leaders, leaders who accomplished great things, who, you know, benefited the, their empires and their nations in these great ways. Um, but at the same time, the most infamous of all rulers are the tyrants. Your Ivan the Terribles, your, you know, Jameses and Georges in, in Britain, your, you know, all these monstrous figures who sort of are like, become the bogeymen of history. Your Ivan the Terribles or, or Vlad the Impalers. Like, these are, you know, they're horrible and everyone knows that they're horrible and the Greeks have had their fair share of terrible tyrants running the show and they don't want them anymore and that's the danger that Aristotle is pointing out here yes kings are the best when they are good when an absolute like single power has you know everybody's best interests in mind the kingdom the nation the city-state will be run more smoothly than it will in any other circumstances but the danger here is it is just one step away from a good king to a bad one. Uh, you can never tell whether the next one in line is going to be benevolent or vicious. Yes, certain families seem to be able to perpetuate that goodness, but circumstances are never that predictable. And you can easily go from a good king to a terrible tyrant. And since a tyranny is the worst, bar none, form of diversion from government, it may be worth our while to reject kings on the basis of also rejecting tyrants. The second form of government he calls aristocracy, with its sort of diversion or perversion being oligarchy. Um, aristocrats are like kings, virtuous, rich, noble individuals. They have everybody's best interests in mind. And as much as, again, aristocracy, like monarchy, has become a bad word in our society, again, the theory here is there are good aristocrats and there are bad oligarchs. Aristocrats aren't by their very nature selfish, they are by their very nature noble and therefore selfless. They have money, they have power, they have virtue, and therefore they are eager to share with others. But just as a king can on a dime become a tyrant, so can an aristocracy on a dime become an oligarchy. But notice that an oligarchy is still better than a tyranny, um, because there are differing interests that sort of fight against one another one another that sort of balance each other out um, now the last category is the one that we're probably most familiar with uh, he has on the one hand democracy i.e. the government of the landed which is basically what a, the Athenian democracy actually was that you know it, not everybody could vote in Athenian democracy only the people who owned land only the estate owners only the nobility in short um, but at the same time since everybody got an equal vote you know, everybody is in fact participating in government. And Aristotle notices this is the worst form of government as it is designed. Um, it is filled with conflicting opinions. It is much slower to get things done. It is way more effective, way more practical to have a benevolent ruler than it ever will be to have people trying to decide things by committee, um, no matter how good that committee might be. But just as a bad, a bad ruler can come out of a good ruler, a bad committee is actually much less dangerous than a bad tyrant. So while democracy, its diversion, the, the sort of evil twin to democracy, is, the, is a bad form of government, it is the least bad of all of the potential diversions. So while what you want 
ideally is a benevolent ruler, a king, who has everybody's best interests in mind, since you can't guarantee that you're going to get a king, it does in some sense make sense to aim for a democracy instead, where at least there's only a limited amount of damage that can be done. Aristotle is putting democracy in a surprisingly high position here. And lots of our, again, founding fathers will read passages like this and see this as an argument for a republic, as an argument for a democracy. That it has all the best parts of aristocracy while avoiding all of its faults because it is elected by the people. Since it is, at the end of the day, a committee running the show, it will not fall into pure tyranny. Um, and therefore, you know, the more democracy the ha you have, the less risk of a dangerous tyrant. Now, obviously, our culture believes radically different things about government. We don't believe in benevolent, in benevolent rulers wielding power. Like, we have our axiom, absolute power um, uh, rules absolutely, and all power corrupts. Therefore, absolute power is absolutely corrupt. Um, like, that's the danger here. Um, our culture doesn't believe in a benevolent monarch. It believes that the more power you concentrate in one place, the more dangerous that place becomes. The more corrupt and excessive that power will become. But that's just not the way that the Greeks look at it, and that's not the way that the medievals look at it, so we should very much be careful to sort of like bracket our opinions as far as that's concerned. But note what is especially important for this discussion of government within the context of the discussion of friendship. Remember that Aristotle sees government as though it is an outlet for friendship, as though it is part and parcel of friendship. Um, and this is usually because friendships are at the foundation of these governmental structures. Like, it's even more obvious in ancient Rome, where, you know, there are more positions of power that can be exploited, and therefore, you know, when a couple of good senators become friends, they become a powerhouse force that dominates the Senate, or when, you know, a, a sort of, like, friendship emerges with the emperor, you know, the emperor's close friend actually wields a ton of power. In Greece, this is the same thing. Like, if, in fact, you are friends with the tyrant, that gives you a lot of sway, a lot of power. Um, if you are friends and create a sort of voting block in the Athenian demos, that could potentially raise you up to a position of greater power, make you a great general, or maybe even a king in certain circumstances. It's tricksy. Um, we generally don't see friendships in that light in our culture. Like, Nobody has to warn you and your best friend in high school that, like, do not overthrow the government because it's, you know, it will cause all sorts of problems. Or what's more, nobody charges you when you are a high school, you know, you and your best friend in high school to overthrow the government. Like, together you can do anything. Um, but with government being at such a smaller scale in these city-states, yes, a close friendship could really undo that. Like, if you have one extremely powerful figure in Athens who is very influential, has lots of money, has lots of sway, and that person allies, makes friends with another person with a lot of power who has a lot of sway, that could absolutely change the course of Athenian history, and does on many occasions. Um, so there is a certain riskiness to friendships. Like, yes, a, a good friendship between virtuous men can absolutely steer a like city-state into its own golden age, but at the same time, notice that from the perspective of the tyrant, from the perspective of the people who already wield power, friendships are threatening. 
It means that people are consolidating power, consolidating virtue, consolidating their influence, and could potentially use that consolidated power and influence to attack the power that you've already built for yourself. And this does happen fairly frequently in ancient history. So when Aristotle is evaluating these different kinds of governments according to how willing they are to let friendships thrive, like what sorts of friendships are sort of encouraged versus discouraged, how in a tyranny, yes, you are going to have certain friendships as long as they have this clear power imbalance, as long as the tyrant can you know, bestow honors and gifts to his friends preferentially and for his own you know, greater glory, for their own reciprocation and obligation to him, while also stepping on any friendships that might occur without that knowledge, largely because the tyrant would be threatened by this. Um, by contrast, the democracy and the timocracy seem to encourage a lot of friendships of equality, um, friendships that are not power disproportionate, friendships between perceived equals, and therefore the most perfect kind of friendships. Now notice that Aristotle generally is okay with friendships that occur between people of disproportionate power. Um, he's very quick to talk about like subordinate friendships, like friendships of you know the father to the son and their equivalent in you know normal social political life. You know friendships of the rich with the relatively not wealthy, not the actual poor, that's just not a thing that happens. Um, friendships between people who wield an inordinate amount of influence and people who wield less influence. Like, these are all things that Aristotle is quick to praise, say that, you know, there's no reason why this is a disqualifying friendship. He acknowledges that, like, similar people will in fact gravitate towards each other and probably have the closest friendships because they have the most in common. Um, and what's more, if that friendship is interrupted, if one of them gets a windfall and is suddenly more wealthy or more influential than the other one, that will probably strain, if not outright break the friendship, because now it will radically change the dynamic between the two of them. But that isn't to say that there aren't potentially friendships of virtue to be had between people at disproportionate levels. It's just rarer. It's more likely that you're going to have a friendship of utility. That, you know, a, a leader, a king, a tyrant will have a friend with who is, you know, specifically good at speaking to the people, who is especially popular or especially persuasive, so the tyrant can use that person's persuasiveness to exert control over the people, while the person who has this persuasiveness will enjoy the benefits of the tyrant's favor and his protection, um, each of them offering something equal to the friendship. This is how Aristotle understands the world. This is how the Greeks understand the world. These are the sorts of relationships that they see occurring all of the time. Um, this is how governments happen as far as they're concerned, usually through these friendships. And this is how they're administered through these friendships. A good king will have close friends both of the virtuous variety to sort of keep them in check, but also of the utility and pleasure variety, and that's a good thing. That's how money and power trickles down from the top into the people at large, through this sort of dissemination of influence. What Aristotle stresses, though, is that it does have to be at least perceived as equal. 
Um, the thing that one friend is offering has to be, even if it's not the same thing, something of equal value to the other person. I am going to give you protection, and in return you're going to give me money. Or I am going to give you honor, and in return you are going to dispose your wealth upon the people. Like, that's the proper sort of relationship that Aristotle is describing. That's how these, these benevolent kings are supposed to rule. Um, if a person is rich, they have a certain obligation to dispose of their wealth, to give it to the people, to spread it around, and in return they will be honored, and they will be appreciated, and they will be given honors and, and significance, roles of influence. Um, this is how it works in ancient Greece. This is how you get influence and power. You exchange something you already have, give it to the people, and the people will in turn appreciate and respond in kind. Um, now that's most of what I want to talk about today. Again, we actually have breathing room, hooray. Um, for next time, we're going to obviously finish chapter 9, this whole excerpt of the Nicobachian Ethics that we find in the Other Selves textbook. And we're going to very much be turning our attention from sort of the big categories and the big picture ideas of how friendship works, the different kinds of friendship, the different ways that friendship interacts, um, the ways that friendship and government sort of parallel one another to a lot of more edge cases, and like specific, uh, specific questions, specific potential conflicts that come up, um, sort of objections to the scheme that Aristotle has pointed out. Um, so we will likely have recourse to refer to stuff that we did and did not talk about in chapter 8, because there's, again, a lot that we didn't cover. Um, but these were the main sort of things I wanted to draw out of the text, the main sort of ideas that I wanted to get across. Uh, both for the sake of understanding the Greeks as the Greeks and for understanding what Aristotle is sort of describing and explaining, um, and what's more for how that influences us now, today, in the present and in our own culture. Uh, so thanks for listening. More Aristotle to come.